Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The Mr. Beacon podcast is sponsored by Williot, scaling IoT with battery-free Bluetooth. Welcome to another episode of the Mr. Beacon podcast. We're really glad you chose to join us. This week, I am talking to Brad Ree, who is the CTO of IOXT. Brad, welcome to the show. Glad to be on. So, Brad, you are a bit of an industry veteran. Um, IOXT is relatively new on the scene. Um, why don't we just start off with you explaining uh, what IO IOXT is doing? I should say uh, that Williot is a member, um, and I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing in terms of my independence. We're certainly an interested uh, party in what you're doing. What are you doing? Sure. So. IOXT, we're the uh, um, international standard for IoT security. And what that really means is we're really trying to address, right, the, the lack of standards around what is happening, especially in the consumer electronics space. And, um, you know, trying to address all these security, privacy, um, interoperability issues that are coming on up as, as we're trying to combine all this stuff through retail channels, ecosystems, and places like that. And sort of as a backdrop of what's going on here is, you know, industry is really, um, there, there's been a couple folks that haven't made some of the best products out there that really has created a lot of fear and doubt in the consumer's minds. So what the IOXT really was founded on was several of our international large tech companies who are like, hey, listen, we make good, secure products. You know, how can we separate ourselves out of this noise? How can we help the consumer know what's going on? And at the same time, you know, it, a bunch of uh, government regulators are starting to wake up and say, listen, something has to change here. And so what we're really trying to do is balance industry-led initiatives, along with helping the regulators set the appropriate amount of regulations around this. So really what we've done is we've, we've taken, um, like I said, a whole bunch of the large um, consumer electronic companies. We're defining our core base pledge items. It's really all around security, um, upgradability, and transparency. 
and then build a certification program around that, that then all these ecosystems and retailers can use when they're putting out um, bids for projects and everything, and really trying to harmonize all this, this uh, security requirements. So manufacturers can build one product and go into a whole bunch of markets. Very good. So that's really what it's about. Very good. Well, thanks for that. I think you set the scene very well. You've raised a whole lot of interesting threads that we will uh, pick at and, uh, and explore. Um, uh, so we, we can talk about the problem that's uh, solving and who's impacted by it, how uh, challenging it is. Uh, I think for companies like, uh, like ours, we kind of look at this incredible IoT ecosystem. It's burgeoning. It's growing very rapidly. What could possibly go wrong? And clearly, security is one of those things that could really undermine people's confidence in Internet of Things. So perhaps you can uh, start off by talking about who some of the members are of IOXT. And how long has the organization been in, in existence? Yeah, we've been around, um, I guess it's uh, about a year and a half, two years, somewhere in there. And uh, the original, the founding members who's on the board and everything is um, folks like Google and Amazon, Comcast, T-Mobile. You know, and, and if you just pause at those guys right there at the beginning, as, as I mentioned, right, we're looking at how do you enable these ecosystems and everything. So it's really right. Google and Amazon run very large consumer ecosystems. T-Mobile and Comcast represent sort of the other side of this equation of managed ecosystems. And as as anyone in, in the IoT industry, right, there's sort of this, you know, there's the do-it-yourself kind of side, there's the um, the managed side, and some of the uh, some of the issues around reliability and security, and, and most important, anyone who has brand on the line when things go wrong. So, so those are the top four um, guys representing that. But then we also have Residio, who of course is the Honeywell brand, makes a large amount of products and everything. Legrand, who's um, a very interesting uh, board member too, because they straddle the consumer yet the light commercial and uh, smart building space. Along with a couple of silicon vendors, uh, NXP and Silicon Labs, and then also the uh, the Zigbee Alliance, who uh, was one of the original uh, founding uh, folks in this organization. So I think uh, people looking at that list, hearing about the, that list, have to take um, have to take you seriously. You have some very heavy hitters. Um, we said this is about IoT. IoT can mean lots of things to lots of different people. Can you give us some examples of some of the security issues that you're dealing with and bring this kind of down to nuts and bolts of, uh, of what is it that is causing the concern and what kind of devices are involved? Yeah, so actually I'll... I'll, I'll take that question and modify it slightly for, uh, <laughs> you know, as always, make up your own questions, right? Mm -hmm. um, but no, so one of the interesting things as you look at what, what is IoT, right? And IoT is such a wide swath of stuff. And even in the consumer space, what uh, what's interesting is even inside of Google, um, there's, of course, the Google Nest team doing all the you know, traditional home automation products. But then also um, the uh, one of our board members is uh, overseeing security for the Android platform. And so just listening inside of Google what IoT means, right? You got one side 
that's talking about home security systems and cameras and everything, which of course are very near and dear to consumers' um, hearts, right? Anytime you talk about a, a camera breach or you know they the uh, looking at at a baby camera or stuff like that, you know, really draws a lot of emotion from the consumer. But on the flip side, what's interesting is listening to the Android platform where you know they've got over 3 billion devices deployed around the world, right? All the Android handsets. And some of the security issues that they face are really interesting where, of course, you always want to make security better and everything. And typically security adds cost. But then when you talk to the Android guys and they talk about, well, you do realize that, you know, for every dollar you add to the phone, you're going to trim so many people in third world nations that can no longer afford this digital lifeline. So it really is this really fascinating um, mixture of security, yet, you know, um, having people able to connect and grow economies and then, you know, adding in the, the personal privacy and all of these things. So, so in our alliance meetings, as we're working on some of these standards and everything, what we're really doing is we're defining a set of requirements that have multiple levels. So, you know, think about a consumer light bulb may have one set of security requirements, while maybe a set-top box or heavy industry may have another set. But as you define each of these, you, you know, it, it becomes very crystal clear. Every time you add another layer, yes, you're making it more secure, but you're adding potentially cost somewhere to either the manufacturing, the design time, or the support time. And then you overlay the business impacts with that. Just make for some extremely fascinating discussions as we're just, you know, once again, just trying to make things secure for the consumer. So, you know, that's the kind of uh, things that really we end up talking about. And it really is the, the light bulbs to set-top box, you know, the consumer to commercial, and how do you balance all of those needs? So that, that's the kind of stuff that we've been uh, spending the last year and a half working through. Ah, so a lot of different kinds of devices. Uh, again, you've raised some interesting themes there. Uh, door locks, I guess, is another uh, example of an IoT device that uh, many of us, including myself, uh, love the idea of an app that can be used to uh, uh, op open your door. But uh, um, the idea of someone who's not authorized <laughs> being able to open your door is kind of a is kind of a scary thing. And I was really struck by, uh, you know, some of the, the issues that, uh, that have been highlighted about uh, door locks being, uh, uh, some of them not being necessarily as secure and, uh, and not for the want of um, um, uh, technology in the bill of materials. The, the, I think there's another cost that, that actually you bought uh, to my attention, which is, okay, there's the cost of the, uh, I don't know, a secure enclave running in the, uh, in, in the hardware, but there's also the cost in terms of uh, ease of use, isn't there? You can make something that's super secure, but completely unusable. You can make something that's super secure and much too expensive. But then there's kind of a balance here. Is, is it really that stark a trade-off that we, on, one, on one side we have a choice of super expensive, unusable, uh, but secure, and uh, low cost, easy to use, and insecure? Is there a happy medium? 
No, there absolutely is a happy medium. And then, you know, one of the ones that I'm actually um, fairly happy with is some of these combinations of like Bluetooth and Wi-Fi, right? So using Bluetooth from your phone to transfer over the credentials to get these Wi-Fi devices on your network, those are um, way more secure, way easier than, you know, the old take my phone, connect to this access point, transfer in, type in all this, ah, forget it, I'm walking away, right? So technology is absolutely um, coming in and even just a lot of these um, best practices that a lot of the companies have started to pave the way, you know, things like two-factor authentication, you know, that's been in the news fairly often about should that be turned on or shouldn't it, you know, and, and some companies who may not have had it on, you know, now you have you have the issues around that where, you know, just the consumer really is used to getting the pin code on the phone, entering it. So I, I don't think that it is as stark as insecure or secure. You really do have somewhere in, in the middle. And, and honestly, most of this is just around, you know, the, the manufacturers being aware and, and just, you know, basically being aware of the solutions and not in just such a race to get to market right away. Right. That's that's really some of that effort there. Right. So let's look at that in more detail, because I think a lot of people have the attitude to privacy, uh, not privacy, of security that, um, you know, these guys know what they're doing. There is there really a problem here? Um, uh, maybe I can uh, just use the same password everywhere because who's got time to uh, mess with uh, with me? It, you know, is there really a problem that we need to solve or why not just continue uh, with the status quo? <laughs> How bad is it, yeah. Brad? <laughs> yeah. oh, so, you know, the, the interesting thing, I go back to the, the Mirai botnet attack that happened a couple of years ago, that that really was the shot across the bow that, that woke up the government. And then just sort of to, to remind you and, and those viewing, you may not see it. Right, so that was one of the, the first large-scale IoT botnet attack, and what it really was was it was basically an attack on known passwords. So, you know, the the attackers went out, they actually grabbed a whole bunch of known passwords for equipment, scanned the internet, and were actually able to use all these devices to go and shut down some rather large services, Twitter, and a whole bunch of these other things. Well, the the interesting part of that, the how bad was it? It was actually only 20 different devices that were part of that attack. And so that's the problem is back in the old days, these IoT devices, you know, the connected devices weren't very popular. Now, as we've got scale on this kind of stuff, you know, you're talking hundreds of thousands, you know, you read about a million of these devices. So now when you have scale, these simple attacks can be greatly magnified. So it really, in, in one essence, it actually isn't too bad, right? Mirai was only 20 different devices. The downside was those 20 different devices represented, you know, millions of nodes going out and attacking things. So there has to be a baseline that we secure against at least these simple, you know, password attacks. You know, a lot of them, this is where IOXT is really trying to get the core baseline, what is it, the, you know, the good hygiene that we can set as these, you know, international standards that work for both Europe and North America and then can go into these other markets, too, to prevent the simple things. Now, clearly things like, you know, people, you know, hacking your Wi-Fi and that kind of stuff is scary and needs to be fixed. 
but that isn't scalable, right? There's not too many folks hiding in your bushes outside your house that's getting on your Wi-Fi. But that scalable automated attack, those are the things that actually has a lot, a lot of people concerned. So people are concerned about their devices being used to stage a denial of service attack. But uh, um, I, I mean, it, it's also about cameras being turned on you and uh, your privacy being invaded. It's about door locks being accessed relatively easily by uh, uh, by third parties. Um, I don't know how much you want to go into that, but... Uh, um, the, the, yeah. some of the well, things that you you demonstrated uh, back at the last meeting were, were just completely opened my eyes to how vulnerable we are uh, and actually how relatively simple some of the solutions were. But uh, so th w tell us what can be done with door locks. Yeah, so the, the door lock one that you're, you're talking about is a pretty interesting attack. And, and most of these attacks, without going into the fine, fine detail on the protocol and everything, um, that door lock attack, so, so there was an attack that was put out on how to basically get the door lock to leave a network, join an attacker's network, and be able to send commands to open it. What the root of that door lock attack really is around is a twofold thing. It's a backward compatibility problem and it's an ease of use problem, right? So what, uh, what was going on in that door lock was the hub allowed for devices to rejoin if it fell off the network, which as a consumer, right, you want your equipment to be resilient. You don't want to have to deal with these kind of things, right? You change a battery, something gets lost along the way. Um, and then also how much of the old gear, right? So as a consumer, you have an expectation that when I buy this door lock, this camera, that when I upgrade my Wi-Fi router, I don't all of a sudden lose connectivity to all these things. So, so that is exactly that struggle that you're talking about. As, as a hub manufacturer, you gotta, you know, you know, most of the time these guys are really about how many devices are in my ecosystem? How wide is, is this, right? The more you narrow it, the less competitive you look to the consumer. But on the flip side, some of that old stuff you may not actually want in your ecosystem. So, yeah, that, that door lock has just, as you talk about, it, it's, it wraps it all together of, you know, backward compatibility. At what point do you turn off devices that are no longer secure, right? I, I hear that discussion being talked about quite a bit in the different regulations of, if a software company is no longer supporting the security, is that device now a risk to the overall ecosystem, right? What do you do with that? But, you know, consumers, when they buy a car, they expect to be able to drive that car to the wheels fall off. Not, hey, my manufacturer stopped issuing software patches. I guess I better put that out to the field. Um, so it, 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 it really is sort of fascinating, the, the challenges there. Um, and so, yeah, it's about usability, it's about longevity. The other thing that uh, you, you've brought up multiple times is privacy and security. So that's another really interesting thing. As I, as I mentioned, right, as we're working on defining international standards, what we're really, um, um, you know, I'm based here in the United States, but we're doing a whole lot with uh, folks over in Europe. And it's interesting to see the differences in Europeans' view of data privacy and Americans' view on who should own data privacy. Is it, you know, America tends to be a little bit more on the industry-friendly, and in Europe it's a little bit more on the consumer-friendly. But as a device manufacturer and you're building products to go around the world, 
how do you navigate these, you know, potentially conflicting security and, and privacy requirements? So yeah, it <laughs> leads to a lot more uh, questions than uh, straight up answers on everything. Yeah, uh, but we, I mean, the, the demonstration that I saw you give was in the space of a few seconds, someone running a script able to open a door lock on someone's door, uh, gain access, uh, then leave, close the lock, and then execute that in a way that it wouldn't even show up on the uh, on the audit trail of what had happened with uh, with with the lock. And that's not to say that this is a vulnerability that every door lock has, but this was a fairly well known mainstream uh, uh, door lock, and it was because of uh, it was because of um, uh, essentially uh, compromises made to. Uh, to ensure ease of configurability and uh, not having to uh, reassociate uh, uh, locks when, uh, when when things change, so um, I think uh, I feel like I've wallowed enough a lot in, uh, enough in the in the problem. Um, um, let's talk a bit about what the solution um, may be. What's the approach that IOXT is taking to? help to fix some of these issues? Oh, absolutely. And that's where, you know, we, we've got our eight different security principles, but I really wrap it into the three, which is security, upgradability, and transparency. The transparency is um, sort of two-faceted there. Transparency is about, one, telling consumers what it is they're getting, how long it's going to be supported, and, and uh, also um, providing a means for researchers to report issues. That circles right back into, of course, the upgradability and security. So, you know, like that door lock, what was actually rather interesting was it was a combination of problems. It was the hub and the, the door lock. The hub had security, um, what was their phrase? It was uh, uh, security disabled. So one of our pledge items is security by default, right? So you should never, if you have a, a product that has security as on off, leave it on. Let the consumer make the decision or inform them what they're getting and everything. Beyond that, um, you know, there, there should be techniques that when um, vulnerabilities are found, companies um, should listen provide reasonable um, updates and reasonably timed updates that can then be deployed and, and then you sort of cycle through again. Because it really is unreasonable to think that any product ship will be totally secure for the next 20 plus years, right? So you need to make sure that you have techniques to actually upgrade that and everything. So what IOXT Alliance is really based on, build that core foundation define based on the, the best learnings from the Googles, the Amazons, right? These guys, Comcast, who, who deploy large, large scale, take that, help educate the rest of the folks in the ecosystem what security should look like. And then, like I say, the counterbalance to all of this is, you know, government regulators are now starting to really pay attention here, help them guide to creating the, the right regulations. And what I mean to that, part of the other interesting challenge right now is you've got, especially in the United States, you have many, many different states. Uh, California started out with one law saying no fixed password. Um, the challenge is the next state said, hey, that's a great idea, but we're going to add this. The next state added another thing. So you even got now Virginia with one potential version of that bill that, that defines what the equation for the password, how many mixed characters and everything, right? 
I ask you, if you've got 50 different, you know, laws out there saying what passwords will look like, how can you ever make a device that can abide by all those? So that's sort of where IOXT is trying to, one, help the manufacturers, but two, sort of help the regulators understand how important it is for IoT to be able to scale across global markets. So, so those are the two things that we're really trying to work through and, and solve. Yeah. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It seems like a win-win uh, to, to, uh, to do that. And there's definitely, uh, it makes sense for any vendor that wants to be a long-term player to align with this. And, and you touched on it already, but there was this pledge, and you, and you distilled it down to three things. But um, where are you with this? It seems like a pledge is a good way to start. People can, it, it's, it's, a, it's a statement of good faith, a statement of intent. People join IOXT, and they make a pledge. Um, is that it? Or do you, do you see it uh, evolving from, uh, from, from a statement of uh, good faith and intent to something more? No, you absolutely hit on it. And actually, you, you, you hit on the, the, the original um, premise of this. So, so when these large companies got together, it was like, hey, let's go make a pledge. Let's go tell consumers that we make great products. The interesting challenge with a pledge is where's the teeth? Where can you prove this? How do you scale this and everything else? So, yeah, what we're absolutely um, um, working on right now is we're looking at launching um, in Q1 of this year, 20, so right now, um, we're, we're going to be launching a um, third party um, set of test labs that will actually test against this pledge. So, the core concept really is. A, anyone who wants to purchase a product to go through their channel, um, a white label thing, you know, think Comcast is looking for a camera. What Comcast can do is they can say, we're looking for cameras that meet the IOXT security pledge level two. From that, the manufacturers can build to that, but most important to this is third-party test labs can actually test and verify that um, the devices meet this. So um, that's really how we're converting the pledge to actually putting you know, rubber to the road with testable third-party verification of, of, the, um, of the stuff. 
The other really interesting piece that we're doing is um, it's part of our pledge um, when we require vulnerability disclosure program, right? So researchers have to have a way to say, hey, we found this problem, you should really go address this. Um, the sort of the top of a vulnerability disclosure program is, well, you really want to motivate these, these researchers to tell you about stuff. So typically there's bug bounties and stuff like that. What we've actually done with our compliance program is we're actually offering um, one technique, of course, is third-party verification of products through normal test labs, so a very traditional approach. The, the challenge is how do you scale to tens of thousands of different SKUs that need to get certified? So what we're actually doing is we're doing a bonded um, manufacturer um, certification. So what that really is, is that allows companies who can say, listen, I do these things, I stand behind my product, but unlike other self-attestation programs where all it takes is one bad apple and all of a sudden the whole program gets called into question, here what we're doing is we're, we're doing a bonded bug bounty style approach where a company can say, I attest that I do this, and by the way, here's a reward to any researcher who can prove that I haven't done this. Mm -hmm. So it's really taken a lot of those same security principles of listening to the community and applying it to our certification programs. So, so that's one way that we're really seeing, once again, how do you get out of just third-party testing where large companies, traditionally they already do this kind of you know, pen testing and everything else, how do you scale it to the connected dog dish, right? How do you get the rest of the community to come along and at least raise their level, right? So, so those are the two approaches that we're really doing, which are very, very far from the very initial, hey, let's all make a press release and say we're good guys. So now this is, we're, we're good guys, we're testing to this, and by the way, we're being held accountable because we're motivating researchers to prove our statements are valid or not. So, yeah. so that's, that's the journey we've been on over the last uh, couple of years. And there was one nuance that you touched on. I just want to uh, drill into this level concept, the idea of having different levels, because obviously the intelligence and the vulnerabilities you're going to have in a light bulb are probably going to be different to a set-top box, which has got huge amount of processing power and uh, flexible connectivity. And what, what, what's the approach with these levels? Yeah, so what we did at, at the very beginning, and it was sort of interesting, in our very first meeting, I set aside 30 minutes to talk about levels. After two hours, I finally had to stop it. Like, you know, trying to <laughs> distill security to one number just didn't work. <laughs> so what we ended up doing, though, is we said each of our eight principles, so like one of them, no fixed password, or another one, um, which no fixed password is actually a code name for, um, you know, no fixed credentials. That rolls all the way into certificates and everything else at the top of the level. And, and just to be clear, the fixed password might be uh, uh, the login is admin and the password is admin. Exactly. Right. So to be at our base, you can't do admin, admin. Yeah. That's bottom, right? But then as you move on up through the, the different levels, ultimately, you know, are you using things like certificates with revocation and these kind of things? Now, you can see each one of these levels does add cost and complexity. And maybe for your market, that might be something that you need. Um, another interesting thing is take the vulnerability disclosure program. So in our levels for this is the very bottom. You, you have an email, security at company.com. That's the bottom. You're listening, listening to researchers. 
as you go on up, you're informing impacted parties. So, right, if you're selling to an ecosystem or a managed um, carrier, you'll tell them. And at the very, very top of this would be bug bounties. Well, now, if you think about what a, a, a carrier might want, they probably want the highest for no fixed password, but because it's maybe a white labeled product with their brand, they're already running their own vulnerability disclosure so they can have a lower level. But if it's a white goods for consumer, then maybe no fixed password might be a hair lower, but you need to listen to your consumers. So what we did is we took all eight of those principles and then we, we came up with a scoring of one to, one to four for each of these. And then that way, once again, the first customer of this is the guys who are running the channel, the product managers and things like that. So, you know, set aside the consumer for a second. Our top line goal was think about the retailer that wants to go get a branded connected thermostat. We contend that we can teach these guys what eight numbers mean for their channel and they can put out a, a quote for that. Now, for the consumer, so pulling it back to what is the end goal, what does security look like for the consumer? What we do is we create these certifications. So based on that channel requirement, think consumer light bulb versus medical equipment, they would have different levels that ultimately you can only certify an x-ray machine under the medical and a consumer light bulb under the consumer light bulb. If you meet those requirements for that market, you get the stamp. So the consumer always can see the stamp. What the stamp means is it's secure for my use, right? The light bulb's secure, my x-ray is secure. We clearly know that the x-ray and the light bulb would have different security levels because they're being used for different things. So that's, that's sort of a, a long journey through the take the eight, we have levels for each of these. We don't just have a bronze, silver, gold. What we have is we have an IOXT certification. So light bulbs will get a certification. They may have a different level, but to the consumer, it's always one stamp. So that's what we tried to distill the complexities. Um, <laughs> took some time to get through all that. <laughs> yeah, no, this is, uh, I think it's uh, a great work that you're doing. It's to everyone's benefit for these things to improve. If uh, IoT is really going to spread, uh, people have to trust it. Uh, they can't be afraid of the technology that they're uh, starting to bring into their homes and, and, and businesses. So, Brad, uh, anything else that we should wrap up with? Well, maybe just uh, where, where do people go to learn more about this? Yeah, so absolutely. Um, IOXTAlliance.org is where our website is that you can come join. What we have is uh, we have multiple levels of membership. The, the easiest one is just to join as a public member. The uh, public member, um, you can uh, attend our monthly conference calls along with our, um, our uh, conferences that we have. The interesting reason, the way that I, I highly recommend um, joining in some of those calls, what we typically do is we balance between industry and the regulators. So very often in these meetings, what we do is we'll bring in some of the regulators from, you know, in the U.S., we've got NIST and NTIA. In the, in the EU, we've got some of the work coming out of the U.K. government. 
Um, and we bring those folks in to really talk about what it is that they're concerned about. And then we create sort of this open forum for people to discuss, um, you know, the concerns about what certain regulations would mean to industry and everything. So, you know, like I say, I keep putting the regulations out there because that is one of the, the more interesting areas that could greatly impact us. On the flip side, the real important thing is for the companies that are um, getting into some of this connected space, getting into some of these work groups and hearing the concerns. As I said, um, you know, when when the uh, the Android phone guy starts talking about three billion devices, that that's a different scale than some of us have had to solve. And it's interesting to hear the journey that they've gone through and some of the problems that they had to solve along the way. So absolutely come join us and. Uh, you know, join in the conversation. Wonderful. Brad Ree, uh, CTO of IOXT, thanks so much for your time. All right, thank you. So were you able to think of three songs that you would take on a trip to Mars? Oh, I, I did. That was uh, sort of an interesting, when you, when you have to nail it down to, okay, what, what three songs, what, what three songs are meaningful and all that. So. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely, I did. So, uh, yeah, the, uh, the the three songs uh, that really uh, come to me are uh, Going to Memphis by Johnny Cash. Oh. Uh, Why did and, you choose that one? Yeah, so that one's sort of interesting. Um, I honestly, it was, uh, got into Johnny Cash back in the, uh, the Napster days when you could sort of try a lot of different music. And uh my my, uh, my firstborn was just a baby, and surprisingly, there's sort of a chain gang part of that song. And for whatever reason, he would be in the middle of crying, and as soon as they'd start doing the chain gang and the Johnny Cash voice comes on, my, my son would just stop crying. So we would take long, long trips when I lived in Atlanta, going up to Michigan, eight-hour trips having to listen to going to Memphis on repeat over and over and over until my son would fall asleep. We got a you know a couple minutes of any other music. He wake up, and we'd have to put it right back on. So so that sort of is uh, going into a uh, special warm spot whenever I hear that. I think of uh, uh-huh. think of my uh, child and how he would fall asleep to it. So, Amazing. And 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 that was that, the only song that did it, or. Um... Well, it was, yeah, so it actually was sort of bad because it was, uh, we bought a, a, a box set. It was Love, God, Murder. The, the Going to Memphis was on the murder one. We had to stop listening to it when my son got old enough. And the very next one was like Cocaine Blues. And my son goes, Dad, what's cocaine all about? Well, I'm just fine. Time to switch over to some kids' music. <laughs> yeah, the wheels on the yeah. bus and all that stuff is uh, probably not quite such good listening, but uh, let Less challenging questions. Okay, Johnny Cash, number one. Number two. So number two is uh, Beth by Kiss. So, uh, you know, that, that song is always sort of an interesting thing of, right, you know, the, the artist who's, you know, so engaged in what he's doing, creating things, yet still trying to struggle, you know, the work-life balance. And it's so crazy that there's an actual song that really captures that whole work life of anyone who's engaged in what they're doing. And right. You're, you're in the middle of creating something new and, you know, though it's, it's, it's your work, but it's your baby that you're trying to get launched and all this kind of stuff. And, and yet on the, the flip side, right, there is a struggle of wanting to go home and spend time with the family. And, and I, I just sort of, you know, find it amazing that someone like kiss can actually sing about such a deep, meaningful thing that we struggle with so often. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's uh, almost universal in this business, isn't it? it it's, it's not a nine to five job. And yet you have to stay sane. And uh, 
I don't know about you, but I've found that a lot of my uh, my uh, college mates have just burnt out. Uh, there's like about 50% of us are just out of work and because uh, it's just tough to keep up the pace. And uh, um, so that work-life balance is, is tricky. It's tricky. Absolutely. Which that leads me into my, my third song is uh, Tonight We Ride from uh, Tom Russell. So uh, it, it's basically sort of a, a cowboy-ish kind of song and everything. But I uh, um, I lived in Austin for a couple of years and got a motorcycle there. And uh, just I, I would start playing that song. And then my, my wife makes fun of me because, you know, in my mind, I'm, I'm this cowboy. I'm, I'm going out riding on my motorcycle. And there's the freedom of just sort of, you know, leaving it and going out on the range and she 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 says i'm foolish and everything for it but that's that's my made up song i put on the music hop on the motorcycle and and for at least a short while i get to be a cowboy <laughs> well, that's brilliant excellent three great choices three great uh uh stories or ideas behind them uh thanks thanks very much brad What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.